Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. This week, people started adjusting to the reality that most K-12 schools in California will almost certainly be out this fall and kids will be getting instruction via distance learning. One of the issues that was kind of hidden when Governor Newsom made his announcement over a week ago was that there's a provision in the guidance that he issued that allows schools serving kids in kindergarten through the eighth grade to apply for a waiver from the state requirements and would allow them to teach the kids in person. John, you wrote about it. Uh, What's this waiver all about? Well, let's call it the footnote that jumped off the page. The waiver was mentioned in a footnote to a lengthy guideline on school reopenings and closings in counties on the state's monitoring list for the coronavirus. Based on comments to the piece that I wrote and how many have read it, there's definitely, definitely interested in the waiver provision. Okay, well, I want to hear more about that, so let's come back to that later in the episode. But on the higher education front, most post-secondary institutions in California, the California Community Colleges, the California State University, the 23 campuses who make up that system, they had already announced that they were going to be going the distance learning route this fall. The holdouts were the nine University of California campuses that have been talking about offering at least a portion of their courses in person, and also significantly trying to bring back students to their campus, at least as much as would be feasible with distance learning in dormitories and so on. But this week, we saw the two colleges that were due to open first, UC Berkeley and UC Merced, saying that they didn't see a way to offer classes in person in the face of the expanding pandemic in the state. And both Berkeley and Reset announced that they would be going fully remote in the fall. It's still a little unclear as to how many students they will be able to bring back, but certainly fewer than what they were talking about before. And everyone is now looking at what the other seven UC campuses will do. They'll be opening a little later in the fall because they're on the quarter system as opposed to UC Berkeley and UC Merced. Well, you know, Lewis, on the K-12, I've been noticing a fascinating development this week. It's uh, getting a lot of attention, lots being written and talked about it. It's what's being called learning pods or micro schools. So parents are hiring teachers or tutors to teach groups of kids to supplement the distance learning that they'll be getting from their schools. They've been planned largely by more affluent parents who worry that their kids are not going to get a quality education via distance learning based in part on their experience last spring with distance learning, which in many school districts left a lot to be desired. It's kind of an expansion of homeschooling where small groups of children meet in a park or at somebody's home for face-to-face instruction. You know, and, and again, it may be led by a tutor or a substitute teacher. I understand they're really organizing this. They're putting ads in Craigslist for these tutors, forming Facebook groups and interviewing consultants to hire these tutors. Yeah, they're called Zooters is the name now, and it's hard to determine how widespread this movement's going to become. Most districts have promised that distance learning actually will be better this fall, and the creation of pods, I think, is going to send a message to districts and teachers in the midst of their negotiations to provide what many of these parents want, which is live instruction to improve what they're getting at home. 
Well, one of the concerns that's come up around these pods is what it means for the achievement gaps that already exist between less affluent and more affluent kids. One expert who is following this whole issue and is concerned about the equity implications is UC Berkeley Professor Janelle Scott. She's the Distinguished Chair in Educational Disparities in the Department of African American Studies and the Graduate School of Education. Welcome, Professor Scott. Well, thank you for having me today. Just wanted to get your thoughts on this recent development, which on one level is seems like a good thing. Parents are organizing to make sure that their kids get the best quality education. They're trying to get their own tutors and forming these pods. And so that all seems commendable in terms of, hey, everybody wants the best for their kids. On the face of it, it would suggest, however, that you do need resources, that this is only going to be a certain sector of the population that will be able to pay for these extra services. And what's the implications of that? Yeah, in the Bay Area and elsewhere, right, we've seen this heightened activity around forming these micro school communities or learning pods or group private tutoring situations that really did explode after the announcements for the plans for fall came out. There's a Facebook group, for example, in the Bay Area that I, when I last checked last night, had over 14,000 members, right? So it represents a couple of things. One, it represents pure panic, right, (laughs) on the part of parents about what they are going to do, particularly working parents who had been able to test kind of the limits of working at home flexibility that are now facing this as a much longer term situation than they anticipated. I think some of the rapid and intensive organizing is is related to that. Now, families of essential workers, uh, workers who are hourly wage employees, gig economy employees, those people have had to do this since shelter in place, right? So I also think we need to keep our eye on kind of what we um, pay attention to and why, and, and maybe we can learn something from the mutual aid that more working class families and poor families have been putting together since the shelter in place happened. So from my understanding, what's going on is there's a lot of variability in what people are trying to set up. One is that there are public school parents who are trying to form these learning pods or micro schools instead of online schooling, virtual schooling offered through their public school. So they're leaving. In other words, they're leaving public education altogether. That's the plan. That's one type. Another type are forming these communities to supplement, right, what exists. And then another is parents just seeking private tutors just for their own children. So a pod of one family and then the exodus to private schools, right? So I think we're seeing kind of a range of how these pods are playing out. You know, as you imply in the question, all of these choices involve incredible resources, right? Should the districts be doing something to deal with what it acknowledges? Students have lost learning and those low-income kids, English learners, we know that they've lost more than others. So what can the district be doing now? Should it be doing now as we approach fall? Districts and teachers have had the summer to try and plan for some more effective delivery and, and, you know, experimenting with different platforms and different modalities of teaching. But I, I guess in my mind, I keep coming back to this idea that, you know, we're doing all of this under crisis situations. The pandemic is ongoing and it has hit particular communities, Black communities, Latinx communities, Indigenous communities, some Asian communities, 
much harder, right, than others across the country and in California. And so districts are also, I think, needing to attend to social and emotional needs of families and students who have had multiple family members get ill and experience kind of chronic sickness and unemployment. So I think those are some things to juggle when we think about what, what it means to have learning loss in a time of crisis. I wanted to ask you about the micro schools, the pods. I'm just wondering whether parents really know what they're getting into. I mean, there's concerns that could increase the achievement gaps and so on, but we don't know what quality of instruction or tutoring these students will get. I mean, who knows if they'll be fully trained teachers. I mean, educating kids is not an easy thing to do. And so I'm wondering if there's some maybe (laughs) false expectations that somehow, oh, we can create a kind of a parallel education system at short notice, (laughs) I mean, with sort of volunteers or hourly workers. The idea is fraught with complications, right, that will be realized as people actually start to enact these micro-communities. I think the the quality of instruction is a big one. The assumption that you can outsource this to a recent college grad who maybe is out of work, or I know some pods are trying to recruit teachers out of schools and to take this on full time. But, you know, they're, they're, you can't control for quality. And I think what we'll see is a lot of churn, right? We'll see people coming... <laughs> you know, deciding that, oh, I want out of public schools and I'm going to do this pod and then, no, I want back in, right? So I think there's going to be a lot of instability. And that's setting aside, you know, the tremendous health risks that these pods imply for people participating in them, but also for community spread, right? If if it turns out that these communities are actually not the best way to be safe, because we're all making assumptions about what's safe based on the best available science, but that science was developed while all of our kids were out of school, right? So there's a big leap of faith here as well in terms of the health risks and the precarity it might present to people participating, but also people proximal to them. We've been speaking with Janelle Scott, UC Berkeley Professor of African American Studies in the Graduate School of Education. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me today. You know, Lewis, wealthy Californians aren't alone in taking action to address the toll that school closures and the pandemic have taken on learning, on children's social and emotional lives, and on families. This week, I took a virtual tour of a counterpart of the Learning Pod, a summer program that the nonprofit Oakland Reach has created for low-income Black and Latino families. It's called the Citywide Family Virtual Hub. Oakland Reach is a parent-run organization that trains parents to become community leaders. This month, the new Family Virtual Hub's 14 teachers are working with 180 children from K-8, to some of whom have been disconnected from learning since schools closed in March. The program is providing classes in the morning in science camp, cooking, martial arts, and creative writing in the afternoon. It's an impressive effort to prepare families for the fall, and we're fortunate to have on the line the founder and executive director, Lakeisha Young, to talk more about the summer and what might happen with the Family Hub in the next phase. Welcome, Lakeisha. Thank you for having me. So tell us what is the Virtual Family Hub and what are its components? So the Virtual Family Hub is essentially an integration of the academic learning needs and aspirations of our families along with the socioeconomic ones, right? So when COVID hit, our families were literally torn between paying bills and getting their kids educated. And we wanted to create a one-stop shop that was not just about surviving the pandemic, but our families thriving. We have three components to the hub. We have the Literacy Liberation Center, 
which is our K through two center. And it's all focused on all aspects of reading. Our third through eighth graders participated in what we call the National Summer School Initiative, and they focus on math and literacy. And then the final component of the hub is what we call the Family Sustainability Center. And that center is and will continue to evolve to be the space where parents come and participate in workshops and get resources that are not education related, but they are sort of whole family sustainability related and our families feeling a sense of ownership and agency and support in those areas is going to allow them to be even more engaged in their kids' academic learning. So what were the academic goals for the students for the summer and, and other goals as well? What were you hoping to achieve and what are the results so far? We're only wrapping up week four of phase one. So with our K-2 through students, we did reading assessments with them a week prior to the start. So we're in the process of actually just assessing their progress as we wrap up phase one, so that as we think about phase two, we want to continue that work. When it comes to our third through eighth graders, what we wanted to make sure for them is that they received, sometime for the first time, high quality content in math and literacy. So again, we're, we're pretty early in, but we had kids for the first time having more critical discussions around content. Is it scalable, what you're talking about, and will that be dependent on philanthropy to fund it? We don't really have those numbers of how much we can scale, but I would say that we can grow to be larger than what we are now, because I think, again, what we will have just with us being able to even start this hub, which we pull together in two to three months, we now have the opportunity to leverage partnerships. I think our ability to scale is our ability to leverage partnerships that have already figured out certain components of what we're trying to do, and then we can move quicker and sort of scale that work. So a lot of our scale is gonna be dependent on our partnerships and those folks' ability to support the families who sort of enroll and sign in the hub. So just thinking about the fall, just to give our listeners some kind of a concrete sense of what kinds of services you might be able to offer. Would you still have the family hub? Would that continue in the fall? Oh, most definitely. The Oakland Reach is about listening to our parents and then designing solutions to support them. And so our families are going to fall into two categories around this scenario. One is we do have families who are like, I'm good with my school. I want to be reconnected back to my school for the for the fall. And, and they're already starting those communications and getting communications from their school. But they're also saying, like, we've had an amazing experience in the hub. Each family has a family liaison. So they have really appreciated the instruction and the supports. And again, they're thinking like, if I'm with my school as well as with the hub, could this just give my family an even better advantage? And this is exactly what we want our families thinking, not just trying to catch up or maybe get ahead. Then we have parents that will start the school year and there will be no connection to their schools, right? And their teachers. And how long that would persist is, is very unclear. So I think in that scenario, we would want to be able to offer, continue to offer a full-scale learning curriculum. How can we partner with organizations locally, statewide, and nationally to provide one-on-one tutoring? I mean, one-on-one tutoring is considered sort of a privileged thing, right? And so how do we use the fact that we are now virtual to do some sort of scaled one-on-one tutoring for kids with learning loss. And even on the full scale side, we would have that component as well. We are thinking about how our parents are coming to us 
And then what are the best solutions to put into place? But I think it can look like both. And I just wonder when you, you must be reading these stories like I am and others about these pods that various communities, particularly more affluent communities, are able to organize. There are concerns that if this really happens on a big scale, that we're going to increase the gaps that are already too wide. Do you share those concerns? Um, no, I don't get up in the morning with those kind of concerns. I think I get up in the morning trying to figure out one, you guys having me on shows like this help folks understand that like we're not trying to lament over the plight of black and brown families. We need to show the innovation that is happening in our communities and how do we scale it. So that I think is most important. And I think that there could be opportunities for partnerships with the hub and the pods, but the conversation can't be the pods and how do the pods serve black and brown families? Because I think the design of the pods just really, really signals to just a really different experience than our families are feeling. So no, I don't feel that concern. I feel sort of more passionate than ever to make sure that California and the country knows that we don't just have pods, <laughs> we have hubs too. And it's not about a competition. What it's more about is we design this directly to mitigate barriers that exist in our communities. We've been speaking with Lakeisha Young, founder and executive director of Oakland Reach. Good luck on the next phase of your family virtual hub. And thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. You know, John, one of the interesting developments is that at least one district, San Francisco Unified, is trying to offer students a comparable experience to those learning pods that we talked about. San Francisco is going to create what they call learning hubs involving thousands of kids, but small groups of kids who will go to libraries, community centers, girls and boys clubs, and get tutoring help and also maybe help with the actual distance learning. Teachers will still be at home giving the instruction, but helping the students get through it and take advantage of it. This is what Governor Newsom said when he said, I'm devoting all this money, I'm sending all this money, nearly $5 billion to districts, and I want you to focus on learning loss. And this is, these are the kinds of innovations I think that he had in mind. Before we end the podcast, John, I did want to ask you about this waiver that districts could get for students in kindergarten through eighth grade that would allow them to teach kids in person rather than remotely. Let me ask you, John, do you know any districts that have actually applied for this waiver? You know, I think it's probably too soon, Lewis, because one of the conditions in that guidance is that you have to consult with parents and you have to consult with teachers, which means unions, and it's way too soon to have done that. I think probably the first ones that will apply will be probably charter schools and private schools because they're eligible as well. You know, the waiver will create opportunities for districts to bring in small groups of underserved students who they think should be the first priority, and they may be students with disabilities or English learners or students who didn't have computers in that first round of distance learning. Or, you know, it may be schools in remote areas or rural areas of Kern County or Santa Barbara that are relatively isolated and their counties are on the list, but in fact, they have not been affected much by the uh, pandemic. They might be the next ones to apply. You know, but ultimately, Lewis, it'll be dependent on the health conditions, the county health director will determine whether now's a good time to start or not, depending on, you know, how the virus is doing in that county. And they may say no. They may say uh, come back uh, a little later, but ultimately it will be determined by how 
safe the schools can be, whether the districts can guarantee that students and staff will be safe. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.